The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 15 and 16. With the joyful task of outfitting his very own office before him, Martin sets aside his scorn for medical peddlers as he looks through the supplies catalog. But Sinclair Lewis doesn't. He offers a parodic description of how it hawks useless electric cabinets with sales copy in the style of a carnival barker. Martin is immune to the persuasion of the catalog's poetry of passion, and he only orders the basic necessities. While Leora yearns over the reception room oak set, he says they can sit in plain chairs. He turns a bookshelf into an instrument case, an old kerosene stove into a sterilizer, and two cubicles into consultation room and laboratory. But he assures Leora he is not going to go monkeying with any scientific research. He hangs a plate glass sign on the door reading M. Aerosmith, M.D., and exalts to Leora that he has never been so happy. After Martin's first patient comes in with an ulcerated tooth, Martin gleefully exclaims to Leora that now the patients will come tumbling in. They don't, and for ten days he only frets and tries to look busy. After a second patient comes in to have a fish hook removed from his hand, an operation that to Martin would have once seemed trivial, but now, in his autonomy and boredom, seems glorious, Martin feels this rush of patience justifies the purchase of a longed-for motor car. To Martin and Leora, the junky Ford with torn upholstery is the most impressive vehicle on earth. Martin becomes the demon driver of the village, and its people, awed by his skill, wait with amiable interest to hear that he has been killed. With his new admirers come new enemies. After succeeding, as predicted, in antagonizing the Norblums, he then alienates the drugstore owner Pete Yeska when he complains of his mangled prescriptions. Thereafter, Martin has to go to St. Paul or to prepare pills and ointments himself. A week later, Martin is thrilled to be awakened in the middle of the night by Henry Novak, whose little girl has the croup. He determines to get there in eight minutes, dresses quickly, cranks the ford, clatters into the prairie, and then finds that he is lost. He stops at a farm, asks for directions, and is told he can't miss it. He misses it. He stops at another farm where an irate farmer with a shotgun sets him back on the road. Forty minutes after the telephone call came in, he arrives at the Novak house. Examining the girl, pale, with blue-tipped fingers, and coughing up saliva with specks of gray, he concludes that she has diphtheria. Probably has diphtheria. With no time for bacteriological examination, he has to make a decision. He must perform a tracheotomy, or get diphtheria antitoxin from the drugstore in Leopolis. He decides on the latter, and when Novak fails to reach the druggist, he resolves to drive to Leopolis himself. In his race with death, he almost drives himself into an oncoming train. Finding the town constable playing poker in a Leopolis hotel, he implores him to jump in the car and take him to the druggist. Minutes later, antitoxin in hand, he is speeding back to Novak's. 
when he arrives, the child is still alive, and he feels less like the cub doctor and more like the wise and heroic physician. He injects her with antitoxin and waits. She gurgles, her face blackens, and she is still. They all realize she is gone. Face to face with death, he is unable to feel the indifference he did at the hospital, and he rages with desire to do the impossible. Passing by the mother's blameful lamentations and the father's sorrow, he drives home with an empty heart. He tells Leora that he's no good, he's through, and she scolds him for being so conceited as to think he's the only doctor who has ever lost a patient. Having heard religious praise for Dr. Winter from the Tozers, Martin flees to him as a sage. Dr. Winter's sage advice is to call some older doctor in consultation, not because he needs it, but because it makes a hit with the family. And he offers his own services at just a little more than his regular fee. He also offers to call the Gazette and give them an item about the case. Then he urges Martin to get one of those electric cabinets, because it impresses folks. Driving home, Martin consoles himself that he'll never be as bad as that snuffling old fee-splitter. Martin becomes a true country doctor, earning a reputation in the community as reliable, skillful, and honest, and spending his free time picnicking, hunting, sleigh-riding, and attending card parties and churches. After he saves the life of a baby who swallowed a thimble, and gives Agnes Ingleblad a dose of strychnine that cures her of ever wanting to be ill again, he becomes famous. He and Leora are finally able to move out of the Tozer's home into one all their own. Leora teases him that she never thought she'd be married to a pillar of the community. But when Bert Tozer, the now prominent booster, demands that he display a Wheatsylvania pride pennant on his car, and Martin refuses, people begin to question his fame as a worker of miracles. Bert then begins whispering about Martin's penchant for whiskey and poker, and Martin develops a reputation as a drinking man who doesn't go to church. In this gossipy and small-minded community, Martin has no one but Leora with whom he can talk about his work and he begins to pine even for the likes of Angus Dewar. Hoping to find in him a stimulant, he goes to see Dr. Hesselink. He woefully asks Hesselink whether he too fears the mental laziness that comes from being without contact with the big guns. Hesselink's response is to chide him for his condescension and to question the intellectual superiority of anyone who uses phrases like big guns. Martin drives home raging about Hesselink's superiority about not being superior. But he begins again to question his own convictions, and he comes home hating Hesselink, but by no means loving himself. He resolves that he and Leora are going to get educated. Since the death of his Gottlieb cult, Martin had been seeking a new passion. He finds it in Gustav Sondalius. Sondalius is a soldier of science, who roams the world, fighting epidemics, founding institutions, making speeches, and trying new drinks. 
In the spell of Sandalius, Martin becomes convinced that the only way to get rid of avoidable diseases is to make the best physicians autocratic officials. Leora tries to mitigate his speeches with promises to be good and not get sick. But even in his irritability, he's always gentle with her, because she is with child. They talk of their child's future, and Martin promises it everything he missed. But he is worried, because Leora is racked with ghastly morning sickness. When her sickness turns into pernicious vomiting, he sends for Dr. Hesselink, who takes the baby from her, dead. Leora decides that if she can't have a real baby, she will just have to bring Martin up, to make him a great man that everyone will wonder at, like his son Dalius. And together they sit, quote, unspeaking, eternally understanding, in the prairie twilight, unquote. The second of my posts was called Big Dreams in a Small Town. There is no one better than Sinclair Lewis at exposing the features of small-town life in all its exasperating nuances. He truly made an art form of it, and in these chapters that art is on full display. He captures the fickle and superficial standards on which a person's reputation depends. Martin loses his standing as the community hero when he commits the unforgivable crime of refusing to display the city's pennant on his car. Quote, Martin's clattering Ford went bare, and when his enemy Norblum remarked, I like to see a fellow have some public spirit and appreciate the place he gets his money out of, the citizenry nodded and spat and began to question Martin's fame as a worker of miracles. Unquote. These sardonic descriptions are densely packed with humor. From the casual referral to his enemy Norblum, an enemy because Martin dared to decline an office that they never really got around to even offering, to the manner in which the condemnation of a man's character is confirmed by nodding and spitting. Lewis exposes the lip service people pay to morality and the premium placed on maintaining moral appearances. Quote, he had intimates, the barber, the editor of the Eagle, the garage man. Perhaps he was too intimate with them. It was the theory of Crimson County that it was quite all right for a young professional man to take a timely drink, providing he kept it a secret, and made up for it by yearning over the clergy of the neighborhood. Unquote. So, you shouldn't drink. Actually, you should just hide the fact that you drink. Really, you should just do meaningless penance for the fact that you drink. He conveys the longing felt by someone who desires more, who yearns for meaning beyond the petty cares of the backwoods. Quote, He was contented enough in gossiping about fishing with the barber, nor was he condescending to meteorologicomania, but except for Leora, he had no one with whom he could talk of his work. Unquote. I thought referring to the cliché mundane talk about the weather as meteorologicomania was hilarious. Any thoughtful reader feels the pain of Martin's yearning. But Sinclair Lewis also wants to make sure we don't become too arrogant and grandiose about this yearning, and that we aren't too dismissive of the values and the people of a small town. 
I think we are meant to sympathize a little with Dr. Hesselink when he says, quote, Aerosmith, I may do you an injustice, but there's a lot of you young practitioners who feel superior to the farmers that are doing their jobs better than you are. I think that a good many of these farmers think a lot harder and squarer than the swells I meet in the city, unquote. And he also shows us how that yearning can lead us to false gods. Quote, like all ardent agnostics, Martin was a religious man. Since the death of his Gottlieb cult, he had unconsciously sought a new passion, and he found it now in Gustav Sondelius's War on Disease. Unquote. Lewis is trying to show that though there are hazards to life in a small town, so too are there hazards in going too far in denigrating it. And the last of my posts was called Leora is the Best. Wherever Martin goes, whomever he encounters, whatever trials he endures, Leora is there as a charming and ever-supportive constant. When he says he's through with all that research stuff, she simply smiles innocently, patiently, knowingly. When he sets to work furnishing his new office, she sits outside in the wild grass, but comes in every quarter of an hour to admire. When he nails his placard to the door, she looks up at it, holding him and squealing softly. When he loses his first patient and says he's through, she won't accept it. She tartly chides him for the arrogance of acting like he's the first doctor who ever has, and she reassures him that he did all he could. When he gathers a small, sound practice, she playfully teases that she never knew marrying him meant they'd be pillars of the community, and that it's too late to find another husband now. And when she suffers months of ghastly morning sickness, and the absolute horror of a forced delivery of a stillborn baby, she tells Martin how worried she was about his worrying. And, quote, he kissed her, and for hours they sat together, unspeaking, eternally understanding, in the prairie twilight. Unquote. Leora's just the best. <laughs>